0: You know, if there's ghosts, then great, that means there's something afterwards. And I'd rather have the risk of encountering an evil ghost than thinking that there's absolutely nothing awaiting and that everybody I've lost is just gone.
1: This is the AMC Mayfair Witches podcast, and I'm your host, Amy Nicholson, writer, critic, podcast host, and witch in training. Each week, I will be leading this coven as we explore the latest episode of Mayfair Witches, discovering more about the magic in front of and behind the screen. Today we are discussing the third episode with its director, Axel Carolyn. The episode is titled Second Line, and like a proper New Orleans second line, it's got a parade and costumes and a band, and this second line is going to dance all the way to a cemetery. Allow me to hiss a word of advice into your ear. If you have not watched the third episode yet, stop here. Go watch it. Nobody wants to get dragged to the cemetery before it is their time. Let's get into
2: it. know how you're feeling, alone, ashamed, afraid of yourself?
1: You have no idea how I'm feeling.
2: I felt it when I touched you. You don't have to hide that from me.
1: You have 40 pairs of gloves. You're the one who can't handle your shit. You don't know anything about me. In episode 3, everybody is vying for Rowan's attention, and nobody's giving her any space to grieve for Deirdre, her biological mom who just died in front of her. Throat slit, blood everywhere, ghastly stuff. But like a severed cranium falling to the floor, I'm getting ahead of myself because our episode starts with a flashback to 17th century Scotland. Our ye old wish Suzanne is trying to save her friend from bleeding to death. And this dying friend teaches Suzanne a necessary lesson about passing on into the beyond. That death does not have to be scary. Death is just our bodies returning to the earth. Slam back to present-day New Orleans, where Deirdre has been brutally murdered and her body is now lying in a morgue. And I do have to say, death is still a little scary. Especially when we don't know who killed Deirdre, let alone why or how. Only that magic was involved in disguising her killer. Against her better judgment, if you ask me, Rowan goes to Cyprian's safe house, where her secretive stalker tells her a little bit about his job. He's part of a secret worldwide conspiracy called the Talamasca, a group that investigates the unexplainable. Kind of like the X-Files, but a little bit shadier. Cyprian tells Rowan she can trust him, and she sort of listens, but he also tells her not to leave his apartment under any circumstances, and she does not listen to that at all. Instead, Rowan wanders the streets of New Orleans. She joins a second line, a death parade, where she finally comes face to face with the spirit haunting her family. Lasher. The first thing we learn about Lasher? He's very, very flirty. They dance all night together, they almost seem like they are about to hook up, but then, right at the last second, Rowan sees through Lasher's tricks and rushes home to Cyprian. Maybe Cyprian is the only person who might be telling her the truth, so Rowan agrees to work with him. They hold hands, and it is... Erotic? There is a whole lot to dig into about this episode with my guest, director Axel Carolyn, Here we go
0: hello i'm so happy to get witchy with you hi it's really nice to be here i'm axel carolyn and i directed episodes three and four of mayfair witches
1: axel i want to start by taking us out of the Mayfair world, out of this Mayfair mansion, to ask you, who is your favorite witch,
0: real or fictional? Oh my God, of all time? Of all time, of all witchery? Wow, you're starting with a really tricky question. There's so many, there's so many. I, I've had the chance to put some on screen. I got to work on Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, and I loved the world of Sabrina. I loved Aunt Zelda, who was one of my favorite witches, but beyond that, I'm gonna go really basic and gonna go with the witches from Disney movies because they were the early ones for me. The one from Snow White, specifically. I was when I was little, I was very much into ghosts and skeletons and everything that was kind of the dark side of Disney or the dark side of every childhood character. So witches were also a big deal and a big part of that. We're little witches in Donald Duck characters that I I loved and I had a little poster of it in my bedroom. So I'm gonna go with those ones. <laughs>
1: I mean, I like that you're right away standing up for, like, Glamour Witch and Hag Witch altogether combined with <laughs> Snow White Witch. She's everything. Well, your episode here, it opens up all the way back in the 1600s. We have this Scottish peasant woman. She has been skivered by a boar. At first, just skivered sounds so much worse than stabbed. (laughs) And now I'm picturing a whole world where boars are just going around skivering people back then. (laughs) But in that scene, like Suzanne has this conversation about like heaven and hell with the woman who's, you know, I think sort of nice and calm and peaceful for being skivered. And I want to talk to you about this moment because I really find something peaceful and simple in the idea of returning to the earth when we die. And it feels a little bit bold in this episode to kind of be
0: like, you know, maybe Christian religions don't have all of the answers. I I love that opening sequence and I love the dialogue between the two of them. And I feel like the actresses did such a fantastic job making it very emotional. I love that it takes that stance right away of even though we're in a different world, we're not talking about witches here yet. You know, women at the time would come in at the moment of birth as a midwife, and they would come in at the moment of death, and they would try to save people or try to heal, and they would be seen as having this almost magical power. And that's why some of them were kind of cast aside society, because their power was not necessarily understood. And I find that exchange, that idea of going back to your mother and your mother before that, that it sets up that lineage that's based on women, but also just that very calming idea of just you go back to the ones you love, and you go back to your roots and to where you come from. I mean, I'm kind of
1: curious to hear from you philosophically, like, how do you feel about death? Is it something
0: scary? It's something that I have a lot of trouble coming to terms with, if I'm honest. I feel like that's why making horror movies and horror television is a way of kind of exercising that fear. And you just kind of play with that idea of the supernatural and the afterlife. You know, if there's ghosts, then great. That means there's something afterwards. And I'd rather have the risk of encountering an evil ghost than thinking that there's absolutely nothing awaiting and that everybody I've lost is just gone. You know, people often say that horror plays that role of when you see a a horrendous death or like if you watch a slasher film, your life is never going to be as bad as that. So it kind of makes you feel better about it. And I guess that's what appeals to me in filmmaking and in storytelling. I love the idea that you
1: can take your thoughts and your fears and your worries and then make them tangible. I mean, just the way that you made 17th century Scotland tangible in this episode. We're seeing different corners of it. You're our first director we've had. And I want (laughs) to ask you, like, how big is this
0: Scotland set? Are you filming Scotland also in New Orleans? We are filming everything in New Orleans, so it was a very much (laughs) a challenge. And... One of the greatest things about working with Esther or a showrunner is that she is very smart in how to convey what she wants to convey with the means that she's got. And so we had a scene originally where someone was digging a grave. And you can't do that in New Orleans because the moment you dig a foot deep, you encounter water, so it was just completely impossible to find the plot of land where we knew we could <laughs> easily dig that. Even if you were like, we'll dig it and then we're, gonna, we're just going to put the six feet of dirt back in? It's like almost everything is a swamp, so you couldn't you <laughs> could make it look like it's a grave because right away it'd be like a pile of mud. <laughs> so, But when you shoot Scotland in New Orleans and you have two worlds that look so completely different, you have to be very clever about what you're going to show and how you're going to show it. The set designs were magnificent, and so that cottage... The interior and the exterior were built on stage, were life-size. <laughs> you'd walk in and you'd look at this and think, like, it looks like one of those storybook houses from Beverly Hills or something. I just remember walking in and thinking, wow, that would be a $2 million house in Burbank. But it's tiny. <laughs>
1: <laughs> How did they smell? They seem so covered in tactile, herby, dried things.
0: I guess the roof is made of hay, so it had this very specific smell to it. And also, there were little crickets or worms or something that were munching in the hay above our heads as we were shooting, so you could hear them. <laughs> like, that cottage itself had life. <laughs> Thematically made so much sense. And then the exterior was, we had a small patch of land, and we had maybe maybe 20 feet of path we could drag her onto, and then everything else was just green screen. So it was a beautiful kind of mix of VFX and an incredible set being built practically that we got to play with.
1: I mean, these sets are incredible. And I heard that some of these sets are the same ones as the ones that were used on Interview
0: with the Vampire. Is that right? The Mayfair house is built partly on the sets of Interview with the Vampire. So they repurpose some of the sets for the, um, well, for a lot of the rooms actually, pretty much every room except the library. Wow, so Aunt Carlotta is walking the same paths as Lestat. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So I think that if I remember well, Aunt Carlotta, her bedroom is in the coffin room. Oh, really? Yeah.
1: Oh, wow. I want to imagine she's picking press-on nails out of the floor. (laughs) 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 You know, I actually want to talk about Aunt Carlotta for a minute because we learn a lot more about her here in episode three. Like, up until now, I thought Aunt Carlotta was just cruel, overprotective. But you show us her bedroom. It has these dinky little twin beds that she shares with Aunt Millie. It just has crucifixes everywhere. Is that
0: an extreme decorating choice or are those crucifixes there for protection? And Carlotta is one of my favorite characters. She is so complex and she's so interesting and I think that her faith is very genuine and her being surrounded with those crucifixes is very genuinely trying to ward off evil, I think. And I find her fascinating because she's a character who comes across as a bit of a villain from the very beginning, she's seen as being very stern, very difficult, very unforgiving. And then when you start to understand why she's doing what she's doing, I hope that you get a better understanding of her and you see that she is, in her own mind, she's the hero of the piece.
1: But that heroism that she has in her own mind makes her do some twisted things in this episode. Like just when I was coming around to her side, believing that she has goodness in her, Aunt Carlotta forces poor Delphine to wear the cursed key necklace. She locks her in the basement like this sacrifice. I want to listen to this scene because she seems to think that even though she's sending her housekeeper of 42 years to her death, she thinks God is still on her side. She left you this.
2: Put it on. Oh no, I couldn't. It's an heirloom. Put it on. She was so attached to it. That must be why she left it to you. Now come. I need your help with something. Was it the Damascus tongue curtain you wanted? No, oh, Delphine. I left you in charge of her. <sighs> May God forgive you
1: may god forgive aunt carlotta oh my (laughs) god
0: she is the devil but she is a devil who's doing everything out of the best intentions she thinks she's preventing a greater evil which is how a lot of atrocities have been committed under the guise of the common good and under the guise of of trying to preserve people from something worse
1: Now I'm like interested if somebody wrote a book that was the history of all the terrible things in the world, according to the Aunt Carlotta personality, (laughs) because you're right. I think that is a common thing we've seen time and time and time again. And I love that you're getting to explore this here. I mean, this is a show where there are so many secrets and so many schemes that are at play, especially in this episode. How do you as a director navigate having so many different characters to deal with And just one little piece of this puzzle that you want to put forth as best as you can. Like, how do you keep all this history and all of these intentions straight in your mind?
0: Well, the greatest thing was that I could rely on the writers First of all, the scripts were pretty clear, but also anytime I had a question about the mythology, Esther knew exactly where she was going and what she was doing, so she could explain it very clearly. And then we had a writer on set, Sean Raycraft, who was also a font of knowledge about anything that would happen later in the season or happened in the book. I had all that at my disposal any moment. But what was also really good was that those episodes were very focused on a handful of characters. You have a lot of different scenes and you have a lot to set up, but at the end of the day, it's the story of Rowan. Everything else is a little bit more peripheral. I feel like that's kind of the biggest guideline.
1: Well, it must be hard for someone like Alexandra Daddario, who plays Rowan, to be the lead, but also be playing someone who has no idea what's going on.
0: Yes, she had to play that sort of strength and innocence and being a little bit naive, but at the same time starting to figure out things and where is she in her understanding of what the family is at every moment, keeping track of that. And we're cross filming episodes. So we're filming three and four at the same time. So she has to keep track of where her character is. If we shoot a scene from episode four in the morning and then another scene of episode three in the afternoon, she has to remember what character knows at that point and what Rowan has found out. And so I I hugely admire the amount of work that goes into that for sure.
1: (laughs) I mean speaking of mysteries, we get to meet Cyprian's sister here, Odette, very briefly. And when she shows up, we get the impression that she seems to think that her brother works for the FBI, maybe the CIA. Either way, it seems clear that he has not opened up to her about his job at all. But he does open up to Rowan a little bit, a little bit about the telemasca and what they do. Although I want to play this clip because the way that he phrases it, it sounds so deliberately vague.
2: I am so sorry for the loss of your mother. I know it must be such a difficult time. So help me
1: understand this.
2: I was gathering information about you, your life, your routine, so I could protect you. The Talamask exists to document and investigate the, um, unexplained. And when we see that someone could be at risk, we offer protection. We've been around since the Middle Ages. I mean, not me.
1: Unexplained? Seriously? Are you kidding me?
2: No. There is something. A being. He used to visit Deidre. Ellie was afraid that he might start to visit you.
1: Being? What is that? What What does that even mean?
2: We don't really know. He's connected with your family. They call him Lasher. Oh, my
1: God. Is he being straight with her in this scene? Does he genuinely not know? Or is he just one more person who is lying to Rowan's face while thinking he's protecting her?
0: I get the feeling he's genuine. What's interesting in this is that when you think back on episode one, she has seen Lasher. I think she's the one who kind of knows more than she's letting on here. And she's being... A little bit deliberately coy to find out more information. And it's a really interesting conversation because you have two people who are not used to opening up to someone else and are used to having secrets. And she is in a very vulnerable situation where she's gone through those experiences basically seeing people die in front of her and thinking it's her fault and then being thrown in this completely different world, realizing she belongs to a very, very strange and very different family. And she's also someone who, from the start, we know doesn't open up to people very easily and Cyprian has this power that puts him aside from everybody else and also makes it difficult for him to connect to others literally cannot touch someone without consequences and he's not even opened up about his job to his own family so it's a very interesting conversation where you see the both of them start to kind of open up and then shut right back down and there's going to be a little bit of that Throughout their whole relationship, I feel those moments of, can I trust you? I think I can trust you. And then, oh, but I, I'm on my own here.
1: I mean, I have to say, my favorite insight into the Talamasca in this episode comes when Cyprian's co-workers show up, who don't really even do much talking, but just the way they look, what they're doing, seems to say so much to me. There's like glasses guy just makes the air ripple around him. There's these two people who are squirting something. What are they squirting around the walls of Cyprian's condo? It's a
0: protective oil. A protective oil. Yes, oh. we had a we had a witch consultant who we asked what they could possibly be doing. We had a whole conversation about what shape it could take, and so we ended up thinking an oil would be the easiest to go with.
1: That makes sense. I thought it looked a little Tin Man. Uh, it's like okay, I sort of know that silhouette, but what is that thing? What I really adore about this show, one thing that's really just been hitting me about the show week after week, is the choices that you make to take this magical world and make it look relatively mundane. Like, these tala that we see showing up, they're dressed in kind of sensible, dull, corporate casual wear. I mean, they almost look like they could be going to T.J. Friday's. <laughs> but instead, they have these oil cans, and they're putting oil around to, just in case Lasher shows up. There's an insistence on realism in the look of this show that I think makes the
0: weirdness seem even weirder. And I think they're so interesting because exactly that. They they deal with the magical and the supernatural But they do it in a way that's almost just based on administration. They're all about the paperwork. They're about keeping track of things. They're not about gaining that power for themselves. They're not about manipulating the power to change anything. They're just all about documenting it and keeping track of it. And so when you have that first glimpse of what the organization is like, it's this big library and everything seems kind of, like you said, a little bit mundane, a little bit every day. And we have documents and we look at books and we write notes and we try to see who's the right person assigned to what case.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But you're pointing out something that I think is really interesting in the Telemasca, which is they're not interested in manipulating things, but they also seem very into control, They want to know everything, but they don't want anybody else to know what they know. There's almost like a contrast there. Mm -hmm.
0: And I think that's something that will will come into play a little bit more as the season goes on.
1: I mean, the magical people that you've met doing research for this show, where are they on the scale of
0: like corporate to witchy? Our witch consultant, Dylan Bauer, is full-on witchy. (laughs) He's not corporate at all. He's just wonderful because he's a practicing witch, but he's also a witch historian, so he has a wealth of different areas of knowledge that he can uh, draw from. Well, do
1: you think you would have trusted him as much if he showed up in a polo shirt and khakis? <laughs> <laughs>
0: Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> now, how witchy are you? Are you into witchy things? I have an interest, but I'm not I don't identify as a witch. I would like to say you're wearing all black right now and it's very striking. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I'm definitely a little bit on the goth side of things, but I have a bunch of different lipsticks. They're kind of purple, and like there's one that's called Granny Panties. <laughs> so it's not as it's not as rock and roll as it seems.
1: <laughs> well, I want to ask you though, as a director, when you're guiding your actors through these scenes that are all magically influenced, where magical things are happening that are going to be added later through special effects. How do you just physically sort of do that to get them in the headspace of you're picturing this or this might be happening or here's what we're going to add later?
0: The main one we had to do that with was Cyprian and his power. The fact that he touches something and then he finds himself in that world and has a vision of something that has happened. And one of the tricky things was that when you come in on a TV show, you have to fit into what's been done previously. But the effects had not been done yet when I arrived, because they were still filming when I was prepping. So I couldn't see what it was going to end up looking like. So it was a little bit of an exercise for both me and Tungai, who plays Cyprian, to kind of understand what it was going to be like. So there were a lot of discussions, and we figured at the end of the day, the simplest way to do this was just to think the hand was the signifier that something is going to happen. So he places his hand, and the audience understands right away that he's going to have a vision. And then he looks around as if he was absorbed into that world.
1: I mean, I was also struck here by the detail that Cyprian knew the Mayfair house as a kid and that he walked by it a lot when he was little. That popped out for me because I know for Anne Rice, when she was a child, she lived by a house that became the Mayfair house to her in her imagination. And she walked by it all the time. So when he was describing walking by this house and picturing the lives that went inside, it kind of felt like you're hearing just Anne Rice in your ears. Did you get to do a lot of wandering around New Orleans houses yourself when you were there, kind
0: of like soaking in that kind of magic? I did. I did. It was one of my favorite parts of working on Mayfair Witches was I'd never been to New Orleans and I got to stay there for two months and discover the city. And the very first day I was staying downtown, and I wasn't sure I was going to like it very much, even though everybody had told me that it was so beautiful. But by the weekend, when I got to walk around, I completely fell in love with it, completely fell in love with it. And one of the greatest things was that we got to have access to places you don't usually have access to. So you would go and scout a cemetery that's usually close to the public or a shooting graveyard at night. Because it's Anne Rice and she's so completely linked to New Orleans and our understanding of what the city is like, it felt like we can really show it and we can really showcase every corner of it and make it look beautiful. And the house for the the Mayfair is gorgeous. And it makes sense within the story that anybody who would walk past would remember it because it looks so different from everything else in the city. Like there's a magic to the way that it looks that is very striking. So I love that. And I love the connection that you made between Anne Rice and Cyprian's character. I love that she's always put so much of herself into her work. Yeah, I feel like especially this series. And as you were
1: talking, you just reminded me the last time I was in New Orleans, like a year and a half ago, we were in the French Quarter, my boyfriend and I, we went to a magic shop, and the door of the magic shop opened and a three-legged dog ran out, chased by a one-eyed dog. <laughs> and it just seemed, it seemed like a potion, but I don't know what for. But <laughs> I, on this episode, you really get to spend some time on the French Quarter. She goes into this really fun-looking funeral procession. She meets Lasher. She meets the second line, where the title of this episode gets its name. What struck me about these opening minutes of our interaction with Lasher is that Lasher doesn't have to try that hard to flirt with her, because as we saw in episode one, getting drunk and picking up random guys is literally her hobby. Uh, (laughs) But he makes witchcraft sound so seductive. Let's take a listen.
2: Hi.
1: Hi. It's an interesting mask.
2: Thank you. Do you wear masks?
1: No. no.
2: No. No. Why would you?
1: What's your name? Adonis. That's your real name.
2: Yeah. It's my name tonight.
1: Okay. San Francisco. I'm sorry. I thought you asked where I was from.
2: Yeah, I was just about to. You read my mind.
1: Be careful what you think. Mm.
2: No, I don't like to be careful.
1: Fun fact, by the way, when Lasher calls himself Adonis, Adonis was, you know, in Greek mythology, this human who was the lover of the Greek goddess Aphrodite. He died By getting gored by a wild boar. He was skippered, (laughs) if you will. And his death was commemorated with a huge festival every single year. I think that's very funny. Um, I was thinking I was going to ask you, what is so seductive about Lasher for Rowan? But listening to this clip again with you and thinking between partying in the French Quarter with Lasher, this like mystical, magical Tom Ford lookalike, or hanging out with the aunties in their twin beds that you showed us, it doesn't seem like a contest. (laughs) That's
0: a fair point. It's also a really interesting scene because he's, what is he doing exactly? He's kind of doing a soft approach. He's kind of revealing himself but not revealing himself. He shows up first in the guise of this woman who speaks to her and gives her that drink. And then he shows up and claims to be someone else and wears a mask. And everything he says has a double meaning. Every question he's asking is actually about something else. And that makes it kind of seductive and enchanting. And at the same time, it's kind of a dream, but it isn't. Like There's so many layers to this scene that are really, really fun to explore, I think.
1: Well, yeah. And Rowan says she doesn't wear masks. She is a person who has done nothing but have this mask, I think, welded to her face since episode one. I think she's disguised even from
0: herself. She doesn't know who she is. It's almost like she's not even aware of the mask that she's wearing. And she is trying to find herself. So a lot of it is questions of identity and questions of how is this being linked to who she is and what she wants. And he seems to know more about her than she does herself, but won't be straightforward about the answers. And she doesn't get straight answers from anybody. All of it is is a little bit bizarre.
1: I mean, tell me about what a second line is, this part of a funeral procession that she's taking part in. I mean, it seems to be so important to this episode that
0: it's named after it. But what is this? A second line in New Orleans, it's something you can throw for a wedding. It's something you can throw for all kinds of different occasions for Mardi Gras. And it's just a group of people who are marching the streets, dancing and celebrating something. And I think in this case, we thought there would be a part of it that would be the funeral procession with the mourners, with the Skull and Bone gang. For listeners who haven't heard of the Skull and Bone gang
1: before, they're a real group of people in New Orleans who march in these parades and these processions.
0: Yeah, which is this genuine... Beautiful tradition from New Orleans. they were kind enough to join the show, and they're the ones who are wearing those skeleton masks and and some of them are on stilts, and they're the ones playing the music. and their whole tradition is absolutely gorgeous. and they come out on Mardi Gras, but also sometimes on other occasions. And we imagined that this was a funeral procession for one of them. So the front of the parade, if you will, is all them so so that means all these people were seeing at the beginning, like,
1: the dancers in the skeleton costumes, the people on stilts, those might even be their costumes. This is just what they this is what they do. They're not even acting that, they're reenacting that.
0: It's their costumes, it's completely genuine. Yeah, we were very, very lucky, first of all, to find them and invite them, but then that they were willing to come over. And when we were prepping, they came in and they recorded the songs so that we could play them back on the day when we were shooting the scene. And we were in this little room with this group of maybe 10 singers with their instruments, and it was so powerful. And you could feel those drums kind of go right through your body, like everything was vibrating with the music. And it's a mourning song that they're singing about how you should get your life in order because you never know when you're going to die and you might be next. And today we are mourning this person, but you might be the next person who goes. It's pretty dark, but it's also very, very powerful and very... Very specific to New Orleans.
1: Well, And it connects so much to where Rowan's at mentally Mm -hmm. this episode. Did you also, though, when the dance kind of marches its way to the cemetery, you kind of got to direct a party? Because there are other extras there. They seem to be doing a good time pretending that they're having a very, very good time.
0: I'm hoping they had a good time. (laughs) I had a great time filming it. It was just, it was. look, you go to New Orleans and you get to work on an Anne Rice show and you get to work with Alexandra Daddario and it's a parade in the middle of a graveyard and there's people dressed like they're in prosthetics looking like they're dead and there's the Skull and Bone gang. That was one of the best nights I've ever had. So I'm really hoping that the the background people (laughs) also enjoyed it. But I think that when you're working on a scene like that, what you have to do is kind of go back to one, you bring back a hundred people to the start of the parade and then you film again, and then you bring them back. There's a hundred people, there's a horse and carriage that you need to turn around. Like, the minutia and technicalities of a scene like this are, there's a lot to deal with. But It still feels like every time you see them moving, every time people are dancing, every time the music goes on, to me at least, it feels like the party is on again. When we wrapped, it was early morning, like the light was just starting to appear in the sky. And I remember staying there for a little bit. I stayed like 20 minutes and some people stayed back as well because it was just kind of absorbing. Hey, we're in the middle of a graveyard. We've just shot something that feels pretty special. And I don't know. It just didn't feel like he wanted to go home right away. It was a moment I wanted to appreciate. Well, and I love how that scene builds is because, you know, in
1: this moment of kind of death and life, walking hand in hand, then we get to see Annabeth Gish again, who plays Deirdre. Or in this case, Deirdre's ghost. She has that scene with Rowan in the front yard. Let's listen to that scene right here. You're perfect. It's just how I imagined you'd be. Oh, my little girl. This can't be happening.
2: But it is. You know it is. They told me you were dead. I would never, never give you up. You're not dead. You're not dreaming. You're awake. And you're just beginning to see the world behind the world. Isn't it beautiful?
0: You can have this all the time.
2: If you open your mind,
0: you can be transformed.
1: I don't want to be transformed.
0: I just want to be me. But you aren't that yet. Not without us. This is where we are connected. This is where we find each other. Through him.
1: One thing that gives me hope for Rowan is that as much as we have just seen Lasher Adonis sweep her off
0: her feet, she also in this moment is able to see through his BS. Yeah. And again, it's a very layered scene. On the one hand, she realizes it's Lasher playing a trick on her. And at the same time, she still I feel like she still finds closure in that scene. The way that Annabeth Gish, who plays Deirdre, plays the scene, is just everything you wish you could see. If you were given 10 seconds or or 10 minutes with someone that you've lost, she's warm, she's sympathetic, she's understanding, she's very sweet. Alexandra was always holding back tears, and at moments that I wasn't necessarily expecting. The idea that she's very lonely was always the time where she would show the most emotion, which I found a very interesting choice. And then she turns, and when she turns, she does it in a very, I felt like, very subtle way where she just kind of goes cold.
1: You know, that makes me think of, I don't know if you've ever lost anybody, but when you have dreams about that person and they show up in your dream and you kind of catch up with them, even though when you wake up in the morning, you know that was just your own head creating that
0: scene, it does feel like closure. I agree. Years after I lost my grandparents, I half woke up one morning and I saw them walk towards my bed. And it felt like, again, I don't believe in ghosts, but that was the closest I've ever seen to experiencing a ghost showing up. And it felt incredibly comforting. And I was kind of slightly aware that I was still asleep and that that was what I was seeing. But it was so vivid, like I could describe what they were wearing. That was like 10 years ago. And I still think of that. And it brings me joy. Even though I know this most likely a figment of my imagination, it felt like, oh, they're in a good place and they're okay.
1: Oh, that's so beautiful. You know, on on that moment, this has been such a great conversation. Before you leave, we are going to end with a little segment called Witch Fulfillment. In this episode, we have Suzanne dealing with a woman who has been skivered by her boar. What would you do to a boar if it skivered you, if you had magical powers, or if you could control that boar? Who would
0: you send that boar after? Who or what? (laughs) If I could stop it from attacking me. I wonder if there's an option where it doesn't skiver or anything and it just becomes my pet. <laughs> and we'd live happily with, like, boars and pigs. And you know, How many boars are know, we talking about here? I you don't know Burbank. how many boars <laughs> do we have around that magical cottage. We had goats on set. Real goats? Yes. There were goats and chickens and all kinds around the cottage. And I, I couldn't help taking photos with the the goat on my back. You know, they, they do that thing that they do when, like, almost like yoga goats. Yeah, yoga party goats. We rent yeah. them for our Halloween parties. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And so, yeah, you, you get on all fours and little goat jump on top of you. And that's my very serious directing style, I guess. <laughs> you know, boars got to get on it, man. You don't hear about party boars. Exactly. Imagine if I could be directing and there's a little boar in the chair next to me. It'd be so cute.
1: I'd be a little bodyguard. A little <laughs> friend, a little bodyguard, a little masseuse. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, well, Axel, Carolyn, thank you so much for coming by the podcast to talk to us about everything. Thank you. Okay, now it is just us again. And I have to say, as a film critic, now I am desperate to see some sort of animal slasher movie called The Skivering. A24, stop with the creepy goats. Go with the boars, baby. Before we go, though, I want to hand you the spring of mugwort to add to our magical cauldron. Mugwort is used for protection. And with so many suspicious people circling Rowan, it feels like we all might need it. You can bet, actually, that Cyprian's Talamasca colleagues already know about mugwort. They are pros of the magical arts. The word Talamasca actually comes from Latin. It means, quote, animal mask. And in the olden days, it was also a term that they used to use to describe a witch or a shaman. So if this show is your introduction to the Talamasca, let me give you the heads up that this secret organization is actually a really big deal. It connects many of Anne Rice's supernatural novels. Anne describes her version of the Talamasca as a group of psychic detectives. She introduced them in Queen of the Damned, and then she had them play a central role in later Vampire Chronicles books. So maybe... There is some crossover potential here. Maybe one day, or, or maybe night, if that's better for their schedules, our witches and our vampires will meet and we'll find out if Louis can outdrink Rowan. This I really have to see. Hello, my name is Jennifer. I live in Colorado Springs and I 100% am a witch. I've been practicing for over 20 years and actually do this professionally. Um, I'm also a huge Anne Rice fan and have been since my childhood. Thank you so much for bringing this to the world and I hope you all have a blessed day. Thank you. How magical that our first voicemail ever is from a real witch. I feel blessed by your message, Jennifer from Colorado Springs. Thank you for calling in. I am so excited to finally hear from my coven members. So please join us in the voicemail hotline. Call 888-994-WTCH. That's 888 Nine nine four nine eight two four. Like a smoke signal going up to the beyond, your message might even be included right here in future episodes of the podcast. We have a very special episode for you all next week when we get to episode four, titled "Curiouser and Curiouser." We are going to be joined by the master of ceremonies, Harry Hamlin. He plays Cortland Mayfair. We are going to talk to him about shiny jackets and giant snakes and what it's like to be the patriarch of a houseful of witchy women. Make sure to watch Mayfair Witches every Sunday night on AMC or stream it early on AMC+. For an extended 30-day free trial of AMC+, go to amcplus.com and use the promo code MayfairPod. That's Mayfair P-O-D. Podcast episodes drop on Sunday nights after the show, so subscribe wherever you listen. And thank you for listening to the AMC Mayfair Witches podcast. This is an AMC Networks podcast produced in partnership with Pineapple Street Studios. Our executive producers at AMC Networks are Kevin Dreyfus, Celia Cunett, and Brian Swarth. Our executive producers at Pineapple are Gabrielle Lewis, Barry Finkel, Max Linsky, and Jenna Weiss-Berman. Our managing producer is Aaron Kelly. Our producer is Ben Goldberg. Ari Saperstein is our editor. Mixing and engineering by Hannes Brown. I am Amy Nicholson. And thank you again to Axel Carolyn for joining us.